My name's Brent Smith. I, uh, I guess I kind of work at the church for the past uh, few months. So that's what I do. Uh, so three weeks ago, Gary started this off in, in Galatians with an introduction. And then uh, Joe did the double header two weeks ago and last week. And then I'm going to pick it up at Galatians 2, uh, verse 11. So uh, we'll just do a quick recap to get everyone up to speed in case it's your first time here for the Galatians series. Uh, if that's the case, I'm sorry that I'm your introduction, but here we go. Uh, just a quick re- recap to get us back up to speed uh, to remind us all what happened there in the first chapter and a half. Uh, Paul opens the letter to the Galatian church uh, with a healthy rebuke. Uh, he says that uh, he's preached the gospel to them and it's blowing his mind how quickly they've deserted that gospel and gone to a different gospel. Uh, what had happened was that some false teachers had come in and they had added to Paul's gospel of faith in Christ to faith in Christ and circumcision. And the Galatians went down that road, which we can gather that these guys must have been very gifted speakers to persuade the Galatians to go there. Anyways, <clears throat> so Paul then launches into a defense of himself and of the gospel that he preaches. Uh, he tells them that uh, it was God Himself who called him, uh, that somebody didn't sit him down and teach him this gospel, that Jesus revealed it to him, um, and that it all didn't happen like a couple weeks ago, but he's been doing this for over 14 years. So he's just saying, like, I'm not a rookie. I've been doing this for a while. Uh, he goes into building his case, about telling them how he took his buddy Titus, a Gentile, up to Jerusalem, and they met with James and John and Peter and the other leaders in the Jerusalem church, and he presented his gospel to them that uh, salvation was by faith in Jesus and that we didn't need to follow the, the Jewish laws any longer. And uh, the leaders there in the Jerusalem church, they agreed with him. They agreed with his gospel. They said, yes, you go preach that to the Gentiles and no, Titus, you don't need to be circumcised, uh, which... Titus rejoiced greatly with joy unspeakable and full of glory. <clears throat> so then he says that they all shook hands and they were all in agreement. And James and Peter and John said, yes, Paul, Barnabas, you guys go off to the Gentiles, preach the gospel. We'll preach it to the Jews. And it was, you know, a great time. <clears throat> and then where I'm going to pick up here in verse 11 is Paul's just final point about his authority uh, of himself. Uh, his de- final defense of his gospel is when he tells them about how he rebuked the Apostle Peter. So he's just saying to the Galatians, look, I'm not just their buddy, and we weren't just in agreement, but I also rebuked them as well. So, so through all this, through the, all the first chapter and a half of Galatians, or really the first two chapters, What Paul's doing is he's just saying, listen guys, listen Galatians, I'm no joke, I'm legit, I'm not just a crazy man running around spouting out foolishness, God called me, Jesus taught me, the apostles agreed with me, so believe me, in the first first of chapter 3, believe me when I say that you're an idiot. So, and he does, and Adam will bring that next week and it'll be great. Everybody? 
So, that's what he's doing. He's just building his foundation and uh, showing them that he's, he's legit. So we'll pick it up in verse 11. Here we go. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. And then we'll just go through and just kind of gather a few points uh, from these verses. So, remember chapter 9. It's all great. We're all buddies. Hugs and high fives all around. You guys go your way. We'll go our way. And we're all friends. Chapter, or verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So we've got a quick change here. We're all buddies in verse 10. And then verse 11, boom. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you then force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word, and uh, we thank you for uh, your spirit here with us this morning, and thank you for... Uh, the way you've been speaking to us already through worship and through uh, the many words that people brought. And we just pray now that uh, you would continue just to open our hearts and give us eyes that see and ears that hear uh, your word and the beauty of your gospel and just how great you are and how glorious your son is and how he died on the cross for us. We just pray, Father, uh, that your spirit would continue to work on us and uh, help us to understand rightly your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're just going to go through this, and I've got a couple points to point out. Yes, it is a two-point sermon. I haven't been to seminary, so I can do that with a clear conscience. Sorry. So, our first point is that the gospel empowers us when we stand before man. Or, if you want to put it another way, the gospel is our ground for fearlessness. I only have two points, but I gave each one two titles, so then it seems like more. Anyways, so, the gospel empowers us when we stand before man, or the gospel is our ground for fearlessness. So here... If we look at the first section, uh, 11 to 14, we've got two guys. We've got Peter 
We've got Paul. They're both in difficult situations, uh, but they each respond very differently from the other. And the key to how they respond differently is what was behind their decisions and what motivated them. So let's look first at Peter. Looking at uh, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So Peter, our first person we're going to look at, his decisions, his actions are motivated by fear. So how did, how did Peter get down this road? How did we go from handshakes in Jerusalem and we're all in agreement to now Paul is standing at his face condemning him? <clears throat> no doubt, this is one of the more awkward moments in church history when you've got the two biggest leaders in the church standing face to face and Paul's calling Peter condemned. Uh, and Cephas is just another, that's the Aramaic version of the word Peter in Greek, in case anyone was confused there. But uh, throughout history, uh, pe- people have had a problem with this passage. They try to defend Peter. Some people say that it wasn't the Apostle Peter, that it was a different one. Uh, some, they're just trying to protect his reputation because he's the Apostle Peter. Um, other people have said that Peter actually wasn't in the wrong here and that Paul was in the wrong for rebuking him and Peter was just being all things to all men. Um, and another thing, another one that people say, which is, which is my favorite, is that they were just kind of pretending so that Paul could rebuke Peter and everyone could be instructed as if Peter and Paul just kind of hatched up a plan in Jerusalem to lead the whole Antioch church astray and just... just put aside all their Gentile friends just so they could prove a point. Anyways, it is Peter. He is in the wrong. And Paul opposes him to his face and calls him condemned. Condemned is a very strong word. Uh, It means that you strongly disagree with someone or that you found them to be guilty. Where we use it a lot today is for buildings, right? That building's condemned. It's unfit to use. It's unfit for service and needs to be destroyed. So it's very strong language here when he talks to Peter. So, verse 12, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So, what motivated Peter was fear. He comes to Antioch. He's enjoying his freedom in Christ. He's eating with the Gentiles. He's living like the Gentiles. He's having a great time. He's not under the burden of the law anymore. But then some buddies who say they're from James in Jerusalem come up and he pulls back. He gets afraid. And we don't really know why he was afraid. Um, Maybe he was afraid that he wouldn't be a leader in the Jerusalem church anymore. Maybe he was afraid for his reputation. Maybe these dudes were just tough and he was scared that they were going to threaten him. We don't know, but Peter's afraid and he pulls back from the Gentiles and he doesn't eat with them anymore. And when I read this, I don't know about you guys, but I just think, not again, Peter. Man, we've been down this road before. Uh, he gets so intense and then he gets scared and does some stupid things. 
I mean, if you look back at when he's walking on the water, he walks on the water, he gets scared, he takes his eyes off Jesus, he sinks. Just before the crucifixion, he's like, Jesus, I'm going to die for you. I'd be crucified with you. Then he gets scared and he denies him three times. And so here we go. We're going right back down that road again with Peter. Uh, but it's hard to knock him because he is pretty intense when he's on. When he goes, he goes pretty hard. I mean, how many of us would actually step out of that boat onto the water? And I'm not talking like, you know, evangelism and stuff. Not metaphors aside, how many would actually step out on the boat in the middle of a storm and step on the water? Not many of us. Maybe Keith, but he's not here. <laughs> He'd probably do that. But not many, not many else of us would. So when he goes, he goes pretty hard, but then he makes some very poor decisions out of fear. So if there's anyone on top of that, if there's anyone who, would, uh, who should have known better, it was Peter. If you want to flip over to Acts 10, we'll just give a little background here. <clears throat> Acts 10. So, there's a guy named Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He fears God. He worships God. He prays to God. One day he's praying, and a messenger from God shows up. An angel shows up to him and says, Cornelius, there's a guy named Peter. He's down by the beach in Joppa. Send your guys to go get him and bring him back to your house. And if we read in verse 9, while that's happening at the same time, the Lord's working on Peter as well. Verse 9 of Acts chapter 10. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Should be a great coffee cup verse or plaque in your house, rise, kill, eat. Anyways, but Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So then, right after that, the boys from Cornelius show up. They say, come on back to, to our master's house. Peter goes with them. While he's there, he just launches into the sermon about the Gospel of Jesus. Uh, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I... No, wait. Yep, sorry. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. 
And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while he's preaching mid-sermon, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. They begin worshiping God. They begin speaking in tongues. And Peter says the, 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 the Spirit's fallen on them. How can we withhold baptism from them? And, and so, you know, it was, it's a monumental day in the history of the church that Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. But then Peter, in, verse, in chapter 11, he goes back to the boys in Jerusalem and they start to criticize him for going to the Gentiles and preaching to the Gentiles. <clears throat> and Peter basically says, guys, just give your head a shake for a minute. An angel showed up to Cornelius. I had a vision. I heard an audible voice from God. I went and preached. The Holy Spirit fell on them just like at Pentecost. What did you want me to do? And then Acts 11, verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also has God granted repentance that leads to life. So this is what Peter is working out of. We're in Galatians chapter 2 here. This is his background. He's had visions. He's heard God. He knows Cornelius had an angel show up to him. He's seen all the Gentiles that he was preaching to, worshiping God, speaking in tongues. And still, when faced with some pressure, he backs off and he still operates out of fear. And what does his fear lead him to? His fear leads him into hypocrisy, Paul says. And hypocrisy is just this. Hypocrisy is when we live outwardly differently than what we believe inwardly. When you try to look different on the outside than what you believe on the inside. And Peter knew in his heart that salvation was not by works. <clears throat> he knew it. He's seen it. He knew that salvation was not from the Jewish law, that it was through faith in Christ. He's seen it happen. And yet he lives differently when he's faced with some opposition and he gets afraid when things get tough. And we, as well, we can't live a genuine Christian life if we allow fear to motivate us. Because fear quickly leads us into hypocrisy. I know this because that's how I lived the majority of my high school life and on into university. I believed in my heart that all the truths of the Bible, my dad was a preacher, I heard them every Sunday and all the other six days of the week as well. I knew it, I believed it in my heart, I believed it was true, but because of fear, I tried to be someone different on the outside than what I was on the inside. <clears throat> I was afraid of my reputation. I was afraid of maybe not being, be, being popular or being made fun of. <clears throat> and I lived my life as a fear. And as a result, I wasn't genuine. But it's not just reserved for the pressures of high school. It happens with us all the time. 
when we allow fear to motivate us. It happens in our workplaces when we talk differently with our coworkers than we do with the rest of the people here on Sunday morning or on our sports teams. It, has, it happens when someone asks us about what we did last night and we purposely skip over that we went to life group because we're just too afraid to talk about it and to be who we are on the inside, outside to everyone else. And we can even let fear motivate us when we hang out with other people in the church. If you look at this passage, it wasn't some non-Christians making fun of Peter in the locker room because he was a Christian. It's other Christians in the church and Peter allowed allowed his fear of them to bring him into hypocrisy. They saw that he was experiencing joy and freedom in Christ that they didn't have and they wanted to bring him down. I remember there was a time, even when I started uh, getting serious about my faith, there was a time that I didn't sing. I wouldn't sing. And I'd be in service and, and uh, everyone would be singing. And I knew those truths in my heart and I wanted to worship and I wanted to sing. <clears throat> but because of fear, I wouldn't do it. Whether I was afraid of what people would think about me, There was other people around who weren't singing either, and so I just didn't want to step out and be singing when all my other friends weren't singing. And I was just too afraid to make that that step. And I'm not a great singer, but so maybe I thought I would be way off key and everyone would look at me funny. I don't know. But I was afraid to, to step out and make that step. But now not letting fear motivate me. I love to sing. I'm still not a great singer. Karen gives me an elbow when I get off key. I try to get back on even though I don't know what keys are really. (laughs) But it's all good. Whatever it might be for you, if you live differently on the outside than what you believe inwardly, fear is motivating you. And fear and a true, genuine Christian life just don't go together. And when you live a life out of fear, very quickly, you'll be finding that you're living a life of hypocrisy. Verse 13, watch this. Watch what fear, watch what a hypocritical life does. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. The thing you need to realize about fear and about hypocrisy is that it's infectious. It quickly spreads to those around us. It's not long before all the Jews in Antioch followed Peter's lead, including Barnabas, another strong leader in the church. And this is what sin does. Proverbs tells us that a companion of fools becomes foolish. And when we hang around people who just aren't living a true, genuine life. They're just nominal Christians. They're not really excited about worshiping God. They don't really have a heart to do the things of God. Very quickly, we come down to their level and it rubs off on us. Our sin affects those around us. Those of us who are parents know that our sin rubs off on our children. When you're angry and frustrated with your children, your children get angry and frustrated. And when you come home and make fun of people from work, 
they'll come home and make fun of people from school. And when you tease and agitate your children, your children will tease and agitate their siblings. Your sin rubs off on them. None of us live a solitary life. And just like that, fear and hypocrisy spread as well throughout the Antioch church. Jesus backed all this up in Luke 12, 1-4 when He talked about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and how it was like leaven that was infectious. It quickly spread to everything. And then He follows that right up with the command, do not fear. In case you like things to be backed up by what Jesus said, He did that. He said that as well. So now, we look over at the Apostle Paul. Paul didn't fear man. He didn't fear Peter. In this passage, in fact, he's the exact opposite of Peter. They're both faced with difficult situations. Peter backed down from James's friends. Paul stood up to Peter. <clears throat> Paul was empowered by the Gospel. Paul lived his life by what he says in chapter 1, verse 10 of Galatians. For now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It was Paul who said to Timothy that the Spirit has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and self-control. And that's what Paul understands. That's the way he lives his life. That's what he's thinking about when he stands up and opposes Peter. And this is what it comes down to. When fear tempts us to pull back, when it tempts us to put up a front or avoid taking a stand, when fear tempts us to go down the life of uh, a hypocritical way of living, the battle that we're fighting is a battle to believe the Gospel. How does the Gospel empower us then to stand before man and live a genuine Christian life without fear. It's that in those moments when we feel afraid and we feel tempted to pull back, we need to stop and think about what it means about God's intentions for us that He sent His Son to die for us. We just need to look to Jesus and realize that the Gospel means that God is for you and not against you. So when you're in difficult situations and you're tempted to fear, Remember the Gospel that He sent His Son to die and He's for you and He's not against you. Romans 8, 31 What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, will He not also give us all things with Him? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. And this is what motivated Paul. He could have very easily been afraid. I think a lot of people would be. This was the Apostle Peter after all. He's kind of important in the, in the history of the early church. <clears throat> Even his buddy Barnabas had gone along with him and every other Jewish Christian in the whole city. So it would be reasonable that he would be afraid. Who do you think you are, Paul, to stand up to Peter Everyone else has joined in. It's too big of a thing to fight against. Just let it go. 
And we, like Paul, will have lots of reasons to fear when we face situations as well. But we need to choose to be motivated by the Gospel. Remind ourselves that the death of Christ assures us of God's love and we don't need to be afraid. Let the Gospel and the fact that Jesus died for you be the anchor that takes away fearless fear. fear. Then we can say in Hebrews, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I will live outwardly what I believe inwardly because I am motivated by the Gospel of Jesus Christ and not by fear. And so, we can look to the Gospel and be motivated by God's love for us to then share His love with others. And we can look to the Gospel and see that the Lord is our helper in our going and our planning of churches. We can look to the Gospel and see that God is for us who can stand against us when we stand up for truth in our cities, in our schools, even in our homes, and in our churches. We go about each day in all our little decisions and all our little interactions being empowered by the fact that Jesus died for you and you don't need to live in fear. So the Gospel empowers us when we stand before man. And the second thing the Gospel does for us that we see in these verses is that the Gospel justifies us when we stand before God. The Gospel justifies us when we stand before God or the Gospel is our ground for righteousness. So by Peter allowing fear to motivate his decisions, he's now sending out a new message to the Galatians. A new message to the whole of the New Testament church is that to become part of God's family, the Gentiles now need to live like Jews. Jesus is great. Come to Jesus. But along with Jesus, here's a little set of Jewish rituals that you need to follow for your salvation. Grace is free. It's here as long as you don't eat this and do this and do this and not do this. Then yeah, grace is free. And here you go. And it just seems like we just sorted all this out and now we're going right back down that road again. Back to a Gospel that says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him and is circumcised will have eternal life. Really puts a damper on personal evangelism. But would make for some really interesting tracks. Anyways. Sorry. So it's a pretty, pretty significant thing. No longer would the Gospel be a free gift of salvation. It would be a wage that Jesus extends to you only if you completed the proper work of the purity laws of, Ju- of Judaism. And this isn't something that you just agree to disagree on and go have lunch. The whole promise of the New Testament was at stake here. And Paul wasn't just going to let it pass. So if we're not justified or made right before God by observing the Jewish law, What does justify us then before God? And then we come to verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinner, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. 
So what Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, Peter, if you and I, who are part of God's chosen nation, who are part of Israel, we're God's chosen people, <clears throat> if we need to put our faith in Christ in order to be right before God, and if we even can't be made right by God by keeping the Jewish law, then you're outside your mind if you think the Gentiles need to follow those same laws for them to be made right before God. It doesn't even work for us, and we're part of the Jewish nation. And now you're trying to put it on the Gentiles. So the point being is that if you've grown up in a Christian family, and you've gone to Awana, and you've gone to Pioneer Clubs, and you've got all the badges and all the Sunday school pins, if your dad was a pastor, if your dad was a missionary, if your dad was an elder, it doesn't matter. It doesn't save you. That's what Paul is saying. It's great. There's lots of advantages for growing up in a Christian family, and I'm very glad that I was by God's grace. There's many, many advantages to that, just none that save. When I was in Ontario with Joe, I heard his story like 17 times in that week, and the guy's no joke, right? He grew up in Pugwash, he was reading the King James when he was a kid, we're happy if our kids read the Jesus Storybook Bible. He, he memorized the hymnal. He's got the hymns memorized and what page they were on. The whole deal. He went to church, prayer meeting, youth group, Bible study, everything. And he'll be the first to tell you, as great as that was, and, and the grace on his life growing up and growing up in that family, it didn't save him. <clears throat> no one... Not even Peter or Paul or Joe or Billy Graham or the Pope or anyone can stand before God and be made right on the basis of what they've done. Paul tells Peter, he tells the church in Galatia, and he tells us today, you will not stand before God and say, look at what I did, God. Look at how I followed all the Jewish laws. Look at how I did this. Look at how much money I tithed. Look at how much I memorized the Bible. Look at all those beautiful Sunday afternoons I gave up for the sandwich run when all my friends went to the beach. None of that will make you right before God. The Bible tells us that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags laid before God. <clears throat> Romans 3.20 For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. It's not about what you've done. It's about what Jesus has done for you. Don't get me wrong. Living a moral life and good works, they're good. That's why they're called good works. They're good, and, but they just don't save. They don't save you. You can't come before God with your long list of morality and good works and lay them out before God. If you understand anything about how holy God is and just how sinful you are, it's ridiculous to think that you can lay all those things that you've done, all those good works before Him, and think that that would be sufficient to cover your sins. You don't justify yourself before God. God is the one who justifies and he does it through his son. This is very good news. 
This is very good news. You have been justified by an act of God. Justified means that God looks at us and says, there is no sin in that man. There is no sin in that woman. All the blatant sin that we've done over our life of choosing lesser things over God and choosing our way over God's way is removed and He looks at us and says, there is no sin. He is just in my eyes. Amen. This should be a very encouraging message to you. It has nothing to do with your effort at all. It has nothing to do about your cleaning yourself up, nothing about your religious activities, nothing about your morality, and everything to do with Jesus dying on the cross and God's grace extended to you. After telling us that our works, the law, do not save us, do not justify us before God, Paul goes on to show us why that's the case. Verse 17 and 18. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, it was God's will for the old age which was dominated by sin and the law to be torn down and the new age in Christ to be brought in marked by righteousness and life. It's not sin if we abandon the law and live by faith in Christ, but if we go back and try to rebuild what was torn down, that was sin. That would be sin. Sin doesn't come from Christ. Sin comes from returning to the law. A little picture for you, okay? If you picture the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus on the cross, as a giant wrecking ball of good news, okay? And the life lived under the law where do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this in order to be saved is like our little house over here, okay? And when Jesus died on that cross, that gigantic wrecking ball of Gospel slammed into that house and completely destroyed it, okay? And what Paul says here is that you trying to live your life with do this, do this, do this so I can be right before God is like someone going in, standing in that pile of rubble and trying to jack these posts back up. They're all splintered and destroyed and trying to rebuild that house. That's been destroyed. Okay? And if you go back and do that, it's not only foolish, it's sin. Verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. We die to the law. We die to a life trying to earn our salvation through good works because it's the only way that we can live for God. Inversely, if we try to live for the law, then we die to God. The law cannot justify you. All it can do is accuse All the law can do is show you your sin. It can't save. It just shows you that you don't measure up. That you, like everyone else, fall short. Matt Chandler has a great analogy where he pictures the law as an MRI machine. Okay, And you're sick, and you go to the MRI machine, 
And all it can do is show you your cancer, but it can't heal. It gives you the diagnostic, but it offers no help. And when we try to live under the law, under a bunch of rules for our salvation, we are trying to make the law do something that it cannot do. We're sick and we're trying to be healed by a diagnostic machine. And as a result, we're still sick and dying. We're not alive to God. We just keep running back to the MRI, back to the law, and it's exhausting. Verse 20, very familiar verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Just as final as Christ's death was on the cross, so now is my death to that old way of life. All my proud, selfish desires my looking to what I do for my salvation, who I was before faith in Christ, that Paul has died and there's a new Paul. Just like John said earlier, that he who is in Christ is a new creation and the old has passed away and the new has come. My life isn't directed by my own personal interests and goals, but it is Christ who directs and empowers me. It's His love for me that He gave up His life for me that allows me to live my life for God with joy and freedom knowing that I'm not justified by what I do, but what Jesus has already done for me out of His great love for me. Paul then finishes with his final reason that we cannot be justified by our works, by the law. His final example of why This doesn't work. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This beautiful picture of God's love for you displayed through His crucified Son on the cross, a plan from before the foundation of the world for Jesus to give up His life for yours, it would be meaningless if we could gain our salvation through our works and through what we do. If we could work and work and work and have a long list of morality to lay out before God and say, here, I'm justified before you. If we could do that, then Jesus died in vain. The Gospel is meaningless. There's no reason to sing all those wonderful songs. They're pointless. If you can just work and do good works and be saved, those songs are meaningless. And we have no need for the grace of God. I just want to encourage you this morning that looking to the Gospel, looking to the fact that the free grace of God is a gift to you through Jesus Christ and His death on the cross, I just want to encourage you that because of that, by looking to that, you don't need to live in fear. You can live a true, genuine Christian life. You don't need to be afraid of what others might think. You don't need to be afraid when you're put in difficult situations when it seems like maybe you're the only one standing or when you're opposing a great leader like Peter, you don't need to be afraid because if God is for you, which is what the Gospel is, God being for you, then 
who can stand against. The Gospel removes all fear and empowers you to stand up. And it also justifies you when you stand before God. You don't need to work and work and work and try to gain a right standing before God. God, through the Gospel, looks at you and says, there is no sin in that man. There is no sin in that woman. All the sin that you've done has been removed. It's been put on My Son and you are now just in My eyes. The Gospel allows us to live a a life of complete freedom devoted to Him, free from what others think and free from condemnation from God. Thank you.